0: Welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. We gather together every Sunday morning at 10:30 a.m, both online and in person. We are uh, in person at our building on Hill Road. We gather together, we have kids' church, we pray together, we sing about and to Jesus together. We're in community together and we submit ourselves to God's Word together. Then throughout the week, we meet in small groups, and you can email small groups at Faith on Hill. Dot com. I want to thank everyone who came out yesterday to our church work day. You know, a couple times a year in the fall or late fall or late summer and, you know, the, the spring, early summer, we have these work days around the building and, and they're so thankful to everyone who come, came out, helped out, just kind of, you know, you got a property. It's, you got to maintain it. And so, you know, doing the weeds and trimming trees and all that kind of stuff. So I say thank you to everyone who came out. We are back in. The book of the Revelation this Sunday. I had a great uh, time away last week. That's why we didn't have our Revelation study. Um, My family and I got to go to the Bend area and uh, enjoy uh, being in the high desert and doing puzzles. Um, You know, you can follow me at Adam Dahlhannock and uh, on Instagram you can see the awesome Street Fighter. Puzzle that we did uh, as a family, and uh, went for walks, enjoyed the enjoyed the you know the outdoors. It rained more than it was supposed to, um, and high desert rain is like different than our rain over here in the Portland area. So uh, we you know we just kind of chilled and stayed in. and We just had a great time as a family. But we're back in the book of Revelation this Sunday. We will be starting in chapter fifteen. Now, when it comes to the book of the Revelation. Timelines and charts figure very big in the American church experience. Growing up in a church that took the Bible seriously and took the book of the Revelation very seriously, man, there were end times charts. This is the timeline of events. This happens here and this happens there and this coincides with this verse or prophecy or whatever. And there's generally speaking some validity to that the Bible gives us a certain amount of timeline. Uh, Daniel chapter 9, the prophet is told, hey, there are seven sets of seven-year periods that are left for God to deal with Daniel's people. That's Daniel, the prophet who wrote the book of Daniel. And God says, hey, I got seven sets of seven-year periods in which I am going to deal with your people, the people of Israel. But in the 69th this you know the second to last right the messiah is going to come and he's going to be cut off and from that moment through till beyond this current moment there has been a pause it's almost as if god had a stopwatch and he hit pause on it and the stopwatch is still there and that final seven year period is ready to go but god hasn't hit restart yet. Now, the book of the Revelation never talks about a seven-year period, but it strongly implies it. And what I mean by that is this. It implies it in the sense that all throughout, especially in our recent chapters the last month or so, it's talked about things in terms of, this happened for three and a half years, that's half of a seven year period, and then this happened for another three and a half years, put them together seven years. Jesus said that the things that will happen in the last days are things that are spoken of by the prophet Daniel. When we studied the gospel of Matthew about a year ago, and we got to the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 24 and chapter 25, Jesus spoke about the words of the prophet Daniel that have not yet been fulfilled. So we understand in broad terms that the book of the Revelation, generally speaking, focuses on this seven-year period, this final seven years where God deals with the people of Israel, he judges the evil of this world, and Jesus returns. Now, within the book of the Revelation, there are three sets of judgments. Jesus takes the scroll out of the hand of him who sits on the throne and begins to open the seven seals. And each time a wax seal is popped open, a judgment happens. And the seventh seal is so big and so massive that it can only be described not as one event, but split up among seven trumpets being blown. And each time an angel blows a trumpet, a judgment happens. And the seventh trumpet is so big and so massive, it can only be described as seven bowls full of the wrath of God being poured out. And we've looked at the seven seals and we've looked at the seven trumpets And now the bowls of the wrath of God are about to be poured out. Last time we were together a couple weeks ago, Revelation chapter 14, we saw Jesus victorious, and he's standing there with the 144,000 witnesses who represent those who were faithful during this final seven years. Now that leads to an interesting question. Adam, will there be Christians there? Could this kick off tomorrow and I will be there? I don't believe so. You can go back. In our podcast feed or on our website, you know, we have all the, the, the Bible studies and teachings there. And you can look back a couple months ago, I did a sermon on the rapture. I'm not interested in fighting anybody about it. If you come from a, tr- a tradition or a church background that has no interest in talking about the rapture, we can still be friends. And you can still come to this church and be totally comfortable. But I do believe that God will remove the church before this final seven years of judgment these who are with Jesus at the beginning of chapter 14 are Jewish believers the 144,000 as God deals again with the people of Israel and I do believe that non-Jewish people will come to faith people from every tribe and tongue and nation will say oh man I missed it now do we know exactly where they fit in the scheme of things there's the people of Israel there's the church there's this other group and we're not sure how that all works I'm just going to say it's mysterious, but I know they're there and they are there with Jesus in chapter 14, victorious, overcoming the world, not giving in to the temptation to follow the beast and to take his mark. But there are warnings given. This is about to happen. This is coming now within the whole seven year timeline. Do I know exactly when the stuff we're going to read about this morning happens. I don't. And I'd be very wary of anyone who comes up with like a timeline chart of the book of the revelation. And you can Google this, right? Google image search, like timeline of Bible prophecy, timeline of the book of the revelation. And they'll tell you like, this is when it happens. Maybe it could also be that things that happen in, you know, the trumpets being blown are things that are like big picture and these things happen at the very end it could also be that it does happen in sort of a linear fashion over the seven years and it could also be that these are things that generally take place or or take place in in massive order or they take place in the last three and a half years only there's all kinds of options instead of focusing on all right i got to get all these timelines right and i got to get my chart right and i'm going to do everything and know all these things i don't care i want to know about jesus I want to know about what he's doing. And I want to know the heart behind what's happening. It says in chapter 15, verse 1, that John saw in heaven another great and marvelous sign, seven angels with the seven last plagues last because with them, God's wrath is complete. And I saw what looked like a sea of glass glowing with fire, standing beside the sea. Those who had been victorious over the beast and its image and over the number of its name. And they held harps given to them by God. And they sang the song of God's servant Moses and of the Lamb. So there are those who have been killed for their faith, most likely. But they did not bow. They did not give in. They were victorious. Something to think about. For them, victory meant death. How did Jesus save the world? It was through sacrificial love. It was through silencing himself against his accusers. It was by not fighting, but by submitting to the will of God. How different is that from the type of Christianity that is promoted by many churches of many different types, old and young, modern and traditional, right and left. It doesn't matter. There's this I'm going to fight. I'm going to stand. I'm going to Take ground. What did Jesus do? And what did these faithful men and women do? They were victorious over the beast and its image and the number of its name. Most likely by dying. Something to think about. They held harps given to them by God. And they sang the song of Moses. Now this is the idea like where people are going to sit around in heaven with harps. First of all, if I am given the ability to play like the legit harp that would be amazing like the actual harp the one you have to sit down and play is an incredible instrument if you've never been to like a high level harp performance and I've a couple of times in my life seen high level harp playing it's amazing I would love the musical skills as a guitar player a bass player I would love the skills to do that but harp is this word that's kind of interchangeable. It could also be like lyre or lute. And honestly, it could be you have a guitar. <laughs> he he's gave him a guitar and John's like, I don't know what that is. It looks like a harp. All right, cool. The point is, is that with these instruments, they praise God and they say, great and marvelous are your deeds, Lord God Almighty. Just and true are your ways, King of nations. Who will not fear you, Lord, and bring your name glory? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship before you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. Now, they are actually singing. Um, when it says they're singing the songs that God gave uh, the ser- His servant Moses, they're actually singing lines that are drawn from places like Deuteronomy chapter thirty-two, Jeremiah chapter ten, and the Psalms—Psalm eighty-six, Psalm ninety-eight, Psalm one eleven. They're singing songs of the Jewish people and they're declaring God's praise and declaring the coming victory and the coming righteous judgment. And they're saying, God, you're right in what you're doing, but they're also in, this is an invitation. I want you to don't want you to miss that invitation. John, the writer of the book of the revelation was Jewish. He was born in Israel. All of the new Testament writers, except Luke were Jewish mostly born in israel some like um some others might have been born like you know paul was like physically you know geographically born outside of israel um you know he's Saul of tarsus right he's not from israel but he was jewish culturally ethnically he considered israel his homeland and john here is calling out to his people the people of god the, the the people of israel the chosen people and he's saying when the end of things come, the victory, the glory, the honor, the praise will be to Jesus, the King. Come in. Come in. This, in many ways, is an incredibly Jewish book. It's a book that you can see John and and God, through John, inviting the people in. In our day, I believe That there is an institutional entity called church. And it's not always the same thing as the organic family of God that is the church of Jesus. Sometimes the church of Jesus and the institution called the church are the same thing or they inhabit the same space. Often, often, in fact, I would argue through the majority of, of history, it's not. And there is an invitation, just as John is trying to invite his people, the Jewish people, to come in and be part of the family and see their Messiah and see their King. There's a part of me as a preacher. And you think, oh, preachers, they preach to the sinners, right? Yeah. And oftentimes I feel like I'm preaching to the sinners who go to church. There's a part of what we're doing as a church family. Where we're trying to invite in not people who are unchurched, although definitely them, but also people who are okay with church, who might go to church, but who are not believers, people who say, "Oh, I like you know, I like the morals, or I like the structure, I like the music." There's an incredible amount of people who want nothing to do with actually following Jesus, who love church. And quite honestly, some of them are really, really ticked that church tells them that where they're at isn't okay because they just want to be at church. They love church. They love the community. They love the, the camaraderie. They love prayer. They love worship. They love all of these spiritual things. And they're just mad. And some of them have a fair point, by the way, because one of the reasons they're mad is that their neighbor, their cousin, their parents, their brother and sister, who are also people who just like church but don't really want to follow Jesus. But their sin isn't harped on. And we know that's true, right? We know that there are churches that will harp on and on and on and on about one or two or three particular sins or types of sinner. And this other type of sinner over there is getting a huge pass. Huge! We're entering Pride Month. Now, Pride Month, first of all, uh, to me, I always, my friends who are are gay know this, too. Like, it's just a corporate thing. Like, you know how we always joke, like, you know, oh, that holiday was just invented by, you know, Hallmark to sell cards, right? Like, Pride Month is this thing where they, they, they do this thing for one month, and then all the corporations, you know, shut it down afterwards, right? So, but we're entering Pride Month, and my friends in the gay community are saying, like, hey, why is it that the church just goes on and on and on about us? but we've got this and this and that over there you know and let's be honest about it when I when I came to this church when I came to this church there were couples living together heterosexual sin and no one talked about it but if you were a gay couple would you have felt welcome do you see the disconnect one sexual sin got a pass the other sexual sin would not have now where we stand is this everyone is welcomed everyone will treated be treated valuably and, and, and you are a, a person created in the image of god every person no matter their situation their status where they're at should be respected feel safe and feel loved it trips It trips some, uh, you know, kind of conservative evangelicals out that we've had transgendered people attend our church for stretches of time because they're like, wait, well, why didn't didn't you tell them to repent? I tell everybody to repent. I tell myself to repent. What I'm saying is this. John is trying to call in the religious people in his camp who like spirituality or I like God, but they didn't want Jesus we're trying to call in people from all camps to see jesus and that includes people who will stay you know we're oh, we're for faith and family and values and yet when you look at like things under the surface you find there's an inconsistency oh we're for we're for biblical standards and then you find out that there's a reason that, do you know there's a reason I don't always tell people what I do when I meet them? There's a reason why. Because people hate pastors. Christians, church-going people don't realize how we are seen in the broader community, in the broader world. In America, pastors have zero, zero uh, respect it, it, you know, socially, right? It used to be like in the '40s, the '50s, the '60s, right? If you were a, a clergyman, you were a respected person in the community. No, not one bit. There's zero uh, that that kind of that kind of capital. That that kind of it's gone. People, oh, you go to church. The reality is that for many of us, we 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 talk about how it takes years of relational groundwork for people to trust us enough to go. I want to talk to you about spiritual things and John's trying to call the Jewish people and say hey look Jesus is there and they're singing the song of Moses and of the lamb that these people who are overcomers they don't overcome because of the temple they don't overcome because they kept the ten commandments they overcame because of Jesus And we're calling the same. To the conservative church-going person, we say we don't overcome because we vote a certain way or because we harp on like two or three specific sins. We overcome because of Jesus who calls us to abandon all sin, all sin, all unrighteousness. To the progressive church-going person, we say the same thing. We don't overcome because we've Gotten some enlightened thing, or we stand on some moral ground, we overcome because of Jesus, who calls us from all sin and all unrighteousness. John says that after I looked and I saw the temple in heaven and the tabernacle of the covenant law, and it was opened. Why is the old the tabernacle? The old covenant seen in heaven. I thought we were in a new covenant, a better covenant with Jesus. That Jesus said, We don't need that old law anymore, that He's done all the work. Absolutely. But remember what Jesus said. He said, I didn't come to abolish the law, I came to fulfill it. So there, the old covenant is shown fulfilled. And it was opened and out of the temple. The seven angels with the seven plagues, and they were dressed clean, shining linen, gold sashes around their chest. One of the four living creatures gave the seven angels their seven golden bowls filled with the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. And the temple was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the temple until the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. When the, there's twice. When the tabernacle was first dedicated, and that was that tent of meeting that kind of traveled around with the people of Israel, and then later when the temple was first dedicated to God, twice, the Bible records that the glory of God in its kind of smoky cloud filled both the tabernacle and then later the temple. And it's representative of the presence of God, the power of God. One of the prophets, as Israel was turning away from God, and rejecting him before they were conquered by the Babylonians. One of the prophets saw this glory cloud of God leaving the temple, and he understood that it meant God was removing his hand of protection, and that when the Babylonians came, there would not be protection from God as there had been in times past. It might not mean something to you, but it would have meant somebody, it would mean something to somebody in John's day from John's people, and he's claiming to them, Moses, the tabernacle, the temple, all of this is found in completion in Jesus. The the glory cloud that filled the tabernacle, that filled the, the temple is the Holy Spirit. And he's filling Christians right now. It's all there in Jesus. And so he's calling out to his people the way that we call out to all people. My people, who are my people, I grew up among evangelical Christians. I want them to just give themselves to Jesus and to turn away from sin and to know the grace and peace of God. I also grew up in Seattle. I've lived all of my life either on the American West Coast, Seattle, the Bay Area, now Portland for like the last six, seven years. Or I spent five years living in England in in Manchester, which is this liberal uh you know not not christian city they're my people you know white west coast liberals are my people and i want them to know jesus too and i want them to know the grace and the peace and the forgiveness of god too and so as john is calling out to his people so we call out to all people you say adam did you say you preach into you know evangelical christians and, and white liberals and you don't care about Chinese people or black people, give me a break. Of course not. If you know me, first of all, you know that that I am the only white, totally white person in my family. My my wife is Hispanic. My kids are Hispanic. Uh, I care about all people. My godfather is a black man. Um, You know, I went to school uh, largely, uh, there was largely white, but there was a huge Korean and and Japanese community. I've grown up among many cultures. I want all people to know about Jesus. But you know what, I also know who i'm most likely to reach the person i'm most likely to connect with is somebody like myself and so that's who i'm trying to reach the same way that john's trying to reach the people he's most likely to connect with now these seven angels and the seven bowls they come out verse one chapter 16 then john heard a loud voice from the temple saying to the seven angels go pour out the seven bowls of god's wrath on the earth The first angel went out and poured out his bowl on the land and ugly festering sores broke out on the people who had the mark of the beast and had worshiped its image. So everyone who took a mark, whether on their hand or on their forehead, will get these ugly, festering, painful, but not lethal sores. If this is something natural, then it is a natural repercussion of what you do. Uh, I have a lot of friends because of you know growing up in Seattle, living in the Bay Area here in Portland, very tech-heavy places. And I was talking to one of my friends who works in the tech industry, and and he takes the Bible really seriously. And he was saying, he's like, you know, it's interesting. He he's like, if if the mark of the beast is a technological thing, it'll be the first widespread, massive adoption. And he's like, wouldn't it wouldn't it not be surprising if? If a natural consequence of whatever technology is adopted is some sort of massive systemic failure of the human body because of taking that using that technology and you're just you're just like oh I'll just do it because you know the beast says to do it and it could be that but don't discount the supernatural this could be a supernatural judgment for those who were warned remember. Two weeks ago, the last time we studied the book of the Revelation, everyone will be warned, do not take the mark of the beast. Do not worship the beast. Do not give yourself over to this false Christ. They took it anyway. I'm more of the opinion that this is a supernatural sort of judgment. The second angel poured out his bowl on the sea, and it turned to blood like that of a dead person, and every living thing in the sea died. What has God got against fish? I don't think he has anything against fish. This is sort of a giving people what they want. There are some judgments here that are very reminiscent to the judgments against Egypt with Moses in the book of Exodus. Uh, We went through that in our 20 minute Bible study podcast. Or if you've just seen Prince of Egypt, you know what I'm talking about. People don't treat the earth well. I mean, let's just be honest about that. We don't. And, and, uh, I'm not a tree hugger, but man, I think there's there's a place where you say, like, people don't treat the earth well, and I think some of the blame of who's not treating the earth well gets a little misplaced uh, and we're a little dishonest about what actually is happening. But that being said, you could see God just saying, like, here, I'm going to I'm going to judge you by giving you what you want. You wanted the mark of the beast. Here's the consequences. You wanted to destroy the earth. And you might remember a few weeks ago, one of the judgments in the uh, seven trumpet judgments was a direct judgment because people had not taken care of the earth, had harmed the environment. And now God's just saying, fine, you get what you want. Now, is this literally blood or is this something else? My, My personal feeling is that this is a divine supernatural thing, but if it was some natural thing and John's using metaphor to describe it, doesn't bother me. The third angel poured out his blood, uh, his bowl, on the rivers and springs of water, and they became blood. And then I heard the angel in charge of the water say, "You are just in these judgments, O holy one, you who are and who were, for you have shed the blood of your, for they have shed the blood of your holy people and your prophets, and you have given them blood to drink as they deserve." And I heard the altar respond, "Yes, Lord God Almighty, true and just are your judgments." Now. Is literally every source of fresh water on earth turned to blood? Is it literal blood? I don't know. Maybe it says so. At the same time, there's a lot of metaphor and symbolism. So I don't know. Whatever's going on. They seem to be able to drink it. So whatever is happening, they they are able to drink and continue living. A human being can only go without water for a few days. So they are able to continue to go on, but this judgment is right there and it's in their face. When it says that I heard under the altar, verse 7, they responded, Yes, Lord Almighty, true and just are your judgments. Who's under the altar? The fifth seal was opened and John looked and saw under the altar all of those who had been killed, murdered for their faith in Jesus. These are the people who were murdered your holy people, your prophets, those who testified of Jesus and were killed for it. And they're saying, yep, they killed us. Now God is making them drink the blood that they shed. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun and the sun was allowed to scorch people with fire. And they were seared by the intense heat and they cursed the name of God who had control over these plagues, but they refused to repent and give him glory. Now, is this natural or supernatural or is it both? I don't know. Again, you can kind of see God giving people what they want. You want to destroy the environment, the ozone layer, the atmospheric protection goes away and now you go outside and you you get burned from the UV rays and the unexpo, you know, the unfiltered light could be that. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast and its kingdom was plunged into darkness and people gnawed at their tongues in agony and cursed God in heaven because of their pains and their sores. But they refused to repent for what they had done. What does that mean? Wherever the, the beast's power base is, and there's different theories about, you know, is it a city? Is it a region? Whatever. But wherever it is, wherever he is making his throne... Will be plunged into darkness, and I take this literally that God will literally plunge that area into a supernatural darkness by the way, this happened in Egypt with Moses, a lot of similarities and imagine that you are uh, cursed with sores we 've already seen that and and there 's no clean drinking water and and you 're in agony, and now you can 't see on top of it, but they refuse to repent. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and the water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings of the east. Then I saw three impure spirits that looked like frogs and they came out of the mouth of the dragon, out of the mouth of the beast, out of the mouth of the false prophet. They are demonic spirits that perform signs and they go out to the kings of the whole earth to gather them for battle on the great day of the Lord. So when the sixth bowl of wrath is poured out, it's not a judgment that affects people directly in the sense of like sores and blood water and darkness. Instead, these demonic spirits go out to gather the kings of the earth together. And the water of this river is dried up to make the way easier for them to cross, to come to where God wants them. There is talk about the armies of the east. We've seen this before. There was mention of this massive army. And they come. And the uh, the armies of the west come. And they gather for battle on the great day of the Lord. And are they coming to battle each other? Or have they all come together to battle against God somehow? We don't know. Um, I think the most reasonable assumption is that they gather together together. To make a final push perhaps against where God has been sheltering the people of Israel or perhaps against some other target and, and they are thinking hey, we will fight what is going on and these demonic spirits rally the leaders deceive them to come you'll, you'll get victory. Now, in our very modern technological scientific age the idea of demon frogs we go wait what that's not real. John was given a picture of something supernatural. And he's just like, hey, this is the closest thing I can describe it to. They went and they did this thing. I'm not one who sees demons around every corner. But it's not unreasonable to think that we live in a world of spiritual warfare. It's not unreasonable to think that when we pray for our leaders, maybe one of the things we're praying is that God would shield them from demonic attack or influence. That there are demonic spirits working and influencing, as much as God allows them, leaders and, you know, key people in key positions, bureaucrats, uh, people who pass regulations and you go, well, you know, oh, God must be really going after that senator, but maybe it's somebody like the the congressman's chief of staff or the bureaucrat who takes the law and then writes a rule that the law... I'll just say this, they're coming together thinking we are going to have victory. God is pouring out his wrath, sores, blood water, you know, environmental devastation. There's no way that the economies of the world are in good shape right now. The world is getting hammered by the wrath of God that it deserves. But they've gathered their forces together and they think that they will fight against God and against what is happening. And Jesus says, I'm coming quickly. This is a message to those who are still alive, who have not taken the mark, who believe in Jesus. I'm coming quickly. Stand firm. Don't give in. The time is almost here. It's a warning to those who will gather on that day. Jesus is coming. And it says in verse 16 that they gathered the kings together in the place that in Hebrew is called Armageddon. And in more accurate pronunciation would be like har and it's a plain, uh, every tour that any church group ever takes to Israel almost always goes there. It's like people people think Armageddon is like talked about like all over the place in the Bible. It's got one verse that mentions it. There's going to be this place where they gather. John name calls it and says it's this the plains of Megiddo. This place called Armageddon. It's a big flat area. You could gather a massive army there. And then verse 17, the seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air. Between the sixth and the seventh seal, the sixth and seventh trumpet, there was a pause. There is not. There's no more waiting. There's no more delay. The sixth and seventh bowl are both poured out, and that's it. There was the bowl poured out into the air, and out of the temple came a loud voice from the throne saying, It is done. Then came flashes of lightning, rumbles, peals of thunder, and a severe earthquake. No earthquake like it has ever occurred since mankind has been on the earth, so tremendous was the quake. The great city was split into three parts. The cities of the nations collapsed. God remembered Babylon the great and gave her the cup filled with the wine of the fury of his wrath. Every island fled away and mountain could not be found. The sky, from the sky, huge hailstones, each weighing about a hundred pounds, fell on people and they... Cursed God on account of the plague of hail because the plague was so terrible. Imagine hailstones. Like, I don't know if you've ever been in a major hailstorm. You know, you you go to places like in Colorado. I know that they have these massive hailstorms. And a friend of mine went out to Denver area to visit some friends and they were just there. And all of a sudden this massive thunder and lightning storm comes through and he had to file an insurance claim because his car was all beat up, uh, you know, dented and everything from these massive hailstones that had dropped down. We were camping last summer in La Pine and all of a sudden our our cell phones like had like half a bar of reception, but it was enough to get a weather alert saying, hey, there's going to be a storm in the next 30 minutes. So we kind of cleaned up the campsite area and then we got into our car because better to be in our car than our tent if you're going to have a massive storm. And it was like somebody was dumping bags of ice like you get at the grocery store on top of us and massive chunks about as big as a grocery store uh, ice cube is coming down on top of everything it was insane and then it happened again five hours later I've never seen anything like it imagine hailstones that weigh 100 pounds dropping killing people crushing destroying and they cursed God but they would not repent all of this comes not because God is like oh I want to just destroy everything It comes because God has time and time again invited people to repent, to to be saved from this. And they have refused. They refuse, they refuse, they refuse. And finally God says, it's done. No more waiting. The time is right. And every act of murder, every child who has been molested, every slave who has been trafficked, every corrupt deal, every bribe, every injustice, every wife who has been beaten, the, the, the judgment comes. God says, all right, that's it, no more. The, the evils of this world must stop. It can't be allowed to go on. It can't keep happening. And justice comes. Friend, God loves you. But his love demands justice. His love for the people under the altar who were murdered because they just believed in Jesus. His love for the little child who was beaten, neglected, abused. His love for the widow and the orphan. His love for those who should get justice and instead the justice system denies it to them. His love for people can't let this go on forever. And his justice is coming. His grace and his mercy are here and now. And Jesus invites you, me, everyone to see the way out is through him. And so, friends, we invite you to know that Jesus Christ died so that we may be saved from our sin and saved from the wrath that is to come we we want you to know that God did not create the world to be like it is And, and sometimes my kids in fact this last weekend my kids asked me why is the world like this and why is the world like that and my response was it wasn't supposed to be this way but people sinned and people continue to sin and at some point God will say no more And things are going to totally get restart. It says that Jerusalem is going to be split into three. That the islands and the mountains will be changed. The physical geography of the earth is going to change. God's going to reset things, and we'll get into what that looks like in the coming weeks. But know this: God loves the world so much that He cannot allow the evil and injustice to continue. So He will bring His justice. But He loves you and me so much that He Himself became a human and died taking all of the sins of the world, including the sins of these people here who refuse to repent on himself, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but would have everlasting life. And that invitation is for you. It's for me. It's for your friend. It's for your enemy. It is for all people because God loves all people. And what is coming has to come. It's right that it's come. It it needs to happen. But don't. Don't be there. Don't be part of it. Escape. If you have any questions about what we talked about, well, these are intense things. These are crazy things. That's what we have the small groups for. The small groups discuss what we talk about on Sunday mornings. And you can email groups at faithonhill.com for more information. You can follow us at faithonhill on social media. You can see uh, video versions of all of these uh, online content on our Facebook page, live streamed on Sunday morning at 10.30 a.m. on our website, faithonhill.com. And you can uh, also follow the audio versions on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to search Faith on Hill. My name's Adam. I pray that God blesses you this week, that you rest assured knowing that Jesus has saved us from all sin. You guys have a great week. Grip of
1: fear, no sting Because Jesus Christ is alive. We're free from guilt. We're free from shame. Jesus Christ is